The Gospels, the four Gospels, cover the birth and the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And then they cover the birth of Jesus, the miraculous ministry of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Each Gospel emphasized different aspects of Jesus. Matthew emphasized the kingship of Jesus. Mark saw Jesus as the suffering servant. Luke emphasized the humanity of Jesus. And John revealed to us his deity. I, uh, I don't remember. I think it was on something else I was kind of studying beyond just what you have in the, in the Living Logos book there. And uh, there, there's only a small percentage of what John covers that is also in the other three Gospels. You will find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are a number of different stories, settings, uh, things that took place that are covered from each one of those, whereas John does not cover as much. And uh, part of that, I think, is because of his, his emphasis. So let's talk a little bit here in the beginning about John the Baptist. John the Baptist and... The scripture tells us that Zacharias and Elizabeth were John's parents. We're going to read a few verses here. We'll start in Luke chapter 1, starting with verse number 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren. And they were both and they both were now well stricken in years. So to those of you that are old here tonight, you're just stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course... According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And, and, and notice what he's doing. Notice where he's at. And I don't mean necessarily physically. I mean, the, I mean figuratively where he's at. He is at a place of service. He is at a place that he is responsible to be at. And so that is the setting in which this next thing happens. There appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He he, he wasn't off somewhere separated on a 40-day fast seeking God. And there are times for dedication and separation by like that. But I, I just want you to notice, and this isn't obviously really the point here of, of this evening, but I, I just think we ought to take note that we, we, we look for all these great supernatural experiences in these isolated situations. And this very significant supernatural event took place simply in the course of, Zech- of Zacharias doing what he was supposed to be doing. There appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. 
But the angel said unto him, fear not, Zacharias. You know, we all want to see angels. You ever notice almost every time somebody in scripture sees an angel, they were scared. (laughs) The angel said unto him, fear not, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife, Elizabeth, shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the, wis- to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And when the Lord tells Zacharias this, he doesn't believe it. He doubted it. And the result uh, was he was he lost his speech. Literally, he could not speak. Another side note, important lesson here. <laughs> Apparently, You can doubt God's promises and them still happen as long as you don't speak against them. Well, he couldn't speak. Yeah, he couldn't, thankfully. But notice, he did not give an assent to what God said. Kind of takes me back to the point I've made many times. I don't think you can tell somebody if they're not being healed or something else is not happening. I don't really think telling them you don't have enough faith is the issue. Because Zacharias did not believe the message from the angel and he was silenced. And I wonder if God silenced him simply so that he could not speak against it. So I challenge you and I, we're probably not going to be made... Uh, to the point we literally can't speak, but we ought to make up our minds. If God says something that seems too imbo- impossible, we are at least going to agree, whether it's individually or collectively, I'm at least just going to say nothing rather than speak against it. Because in saying nothing, God can still do it. That's free. Of course, all of this is free, but other than the book, if you got the book. So, he, he, he can't speak, and, and, and continuing, I'm not going to read it all, I'm going to kind of jump down here in a moment, but, but uh, finally John is born, and when John is born, because of, because of uh, I guess, custom, they just automatically, everybody assumed what his name was going to be, and Elizabeth speaks up and says, it's not Zacharias, it's going to be John. And Zacharias, who still cannot speak, asks for a tablet, and he writes on the tablet that, in fact, it is going to be John. i got to keep going. There's some really good things to take a trail off of here. (laughs) The people... So, verse, verse 76, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest... For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of sins. You're not just an ordinary individual. This is not just an ordinary person. Hence, one of the reasons why he wasn't just being named Zacharias. There was a unique divine purpose that was on his life. 
Now let's go. We're, we're not done with John. We're going to come back to him in a few moments. Let's go to the birth of Jesus. And all of this is kind of intertwined, taking place at the same time. Hence, we are reading from still the same chapter in the book of Luke. So in verse 30, the angel said unto her, and this is unto Mary, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Verse 35, and the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost, and the verses we're skipping is Mary asking, how can this happen? The Holy Ghost shall over, shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth. She hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So notice that, that really both of these are miraculous conceptions. Obviously, John's conception not being by the Holy Ghost, there were two human beings involved, but again, they were at a point in life where it was beyond reasonable expectation. And so you've got John, whose conception is miraculous. And then, of course, we know that Jesus is totally miraculous because Mary conceived by the Holy Ghost. Scripture also says that there comes a point after this, this, this time where uh, Mary and Elizabeth meet up. They see each other. And, 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 when, and when Elizabeth heard... Mary's voice, John leapt within Elizabeth's womb. There was a divine connection even in the womb. Matthew 1.22 tells us that all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Don't mean this to sound sarcastic or whatever else, but it wasn't the second person of the Trinity with us. It was God, Emmanuel, God with us. It's, it's one of those, you know, great Christmas carols. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. I, I think the problem is some of these things become so familiar to us that we forget the significance of them. Because Bethlehem was not a coincidence. It was, in fact, prophesied by the prophet Micah, Chapter 5 and verse number 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. How did they end up in Bethlehem? 
course, we know how they got there. The Lord spoke to Joseph and said, Thus saith the Lord unto you, Joseph, go to Bethlehem. Right? That's how they got there. Hint, the second answer is the correct answer. It's not how they got there. How did they get there? Caesar Augustus. Sort of. Here we go. You ready? Randomly decides we're going to tax everybody. And we're going to, for you to pay your taxes, you need to go to the, the place of your heritage. So it just so happened that right before Jesus is born, Caesar Augustus, a carnal, ungodly ruler, makes a decision that was very inconvenient. And I'm sure many were grumbling about it. And yet that was the very thing that caused Joseph and Mary to have to go to the city where the prophecy was that Jesus was going to come. It wasn't a coincidence. It was divinely orchestrated by God. There is so much good stuff. I'm trying to obey what I've told everybody else. Stick with the topic. But since I'm the guy that's, you know, the one that's got to rebuke you, I'll rebuke myself in the mirror later. I can't pass some of this stuff up. It's too good. Don't miss that God is divinely orchestrating where you are or where you're going by what may seem like to be completely random circumstances. But he knows how to get you to the right place at the right time. Because there was a prophecy that said this is where it's got to happen. And my point is, you and I can trust God that He knows how to get us where we need to be, even if we don't think He's talking to us directly. If we are surrendered and submitted to His will for our lives, He knows how to get us to where we need to be. And then, of course, we all know, and of course, we all know based on the song, we three kings of Orient are. Where's Tar at? <laughs> Orient and Tar. That's where they were from, right? Of course, here's the other point. How many wise men were there? Ah, all right. We don't know. Apparently because, because yeah, you, all right, that's good. I'll take that. I don't mind that. You're reading ahead. That's an encouraging sign. I guess we obviously came up with that, as it says, because there was three gifts, so there had to be three wise men. There may have been one wise man with three gifts, except we know there were more than one. They go to Herod. Where was Herod? Jerusalem. They're asking, we've seen the star, king of the Jews, can you help us find him? And he sends them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. 
I know this is Herod and Herod was opposed to all of this, but I think there's some valuable words or valuable lesson from Herod's words. He said, go to Bethlehem and when you get there, search diligently. Don't do it haphazardly. Don't don't do it half-heartedly, which is exactly the way you and I. He said, you will find me when you search for me. With all of your heart. I'm not very far from you, but you got to really search for me. So he says, go to Bethlehem and search diligently, which is, of course, what they do. They follow the star, which reminds us of what the psalmist said in Psalms 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I don't know how specifically that star pointed to the exact location, but I think perhaps they had to get to Bethlehem and do a little bit of searching. But because they searched, they did find him. And you and I can do the same thing when we search for him with all of our heart. And not just the first time. I think it applies all the time. If we're going to find him, we got to search for him with all of our heart. I know I know we we talk about the baptism of Jesus and what what Jesus told John and we're going to read that here in a little while that it was necessary for him to fulfill all righteousness, but the bottom line is from the very beginning of Jesus life it was necessary for him to fulfill all righteousness. And this is something that kind of struck me as I was reading and studying and preparing for tonight. Obviously, Jesus had to do his part submitting to the Father's will. But I kind of, I kind of, I, I got a little, and this, this, uh, this kind of hit me that, I'm not sure we always quite give Mary and Joseph the credit that God entrusted Jesus into their care. Because not only did Jesus have to do what was necessary to fulfill all righteousness, there was a point in time, which we're about to talk about here a little bit, in which he did not have the ability himself to do what needed to be done. And so he needed someone to assist him in that process. His first visit to the temple was, in fact, a part of that fulfillment of the law because he's taken there after eight days to be circumcised. He couldn't get there by himself. <laughs> Couldn't make his way to the temple on his own. He needed somebody that also believed what the law said and obeyed the law to get him there. And then watch what happens while he's there, a part of this process of fulfilling the law and circumcision after eight days. It says in Luke 2 and 25, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. In essence, he was looking for the Messiah. But he was a just and devout man. I want you to 
Make a mental note of that. And here he is at the temple when Jesus comes to be circumcised and by divine revelation he recognizes this is the one. This is in fact the one I have been believing was to come and I have been given the privilege and the opportunity to see him with my own eyes. And then going down to verse number 36, Anna, who was a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Acer, she was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity And she was a widow of about four score and four years. If I'm not mistaken, a score is 20 years. So 84 years. Look at what she did not do in 84 years. She did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So I want you to go back to those two words uh, that describe Simeon. He was a just and a devout man who was in essence giving his life to serving God. And now the prophetess Anna shows up who is given 84 years according to the scripture, never departing from the temple, but serving God with fastings and prayers night and day. These were two people These were two people. Besides at this point, perhaps, Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth. And I suppose Zacharias. So I think it's fairly safe to say that at this point in time, there were five people that were aware that Messiah has been born. Five people. And it would be 30 years later until the public would be made aware. And yet, Simeon and Anna knew. I don't think the lives they lived were a coincidence. Or, or I don't think the reason why they had this experience was a coincidence. Let me say it that way. Because they had lived a life of dedication and devotion. And it provided them the opportunity to see things that no one else had seen yet. I hope y'all aren't so much following that book that you're not hearing some things I'm saying. <laughs> Their life of dedication and commitment provided them an experience that basically no one else was having. I believe God desires to do the same thing for you and I. That if we will live a life that's just and devout, if we will live... No, nobody here is going to live at this building for 84 years. (laughs) But in principle... If we live that kind of life of dedication and commitment, I believe you and I can have an expectation that God is going to let us see some things and experience some things long before the general population does. But you're not going to get that living a half-hearted relationship with God, dedication and commitment to God. There's got to be devotion. There's got to be dedication. So we go from this 
time of Jesus as an infant at the temple. And basically until the day that John announces him in public, we really don't know a whole lot about him. Although Hebrews gives us a little bit of an insight as to what took place in those 30 years. The King James says that he learned obedience, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things he suffered. Listen to the way the Living Bible says it. And even though Jesus was God's son, he had to learn from experience what it was like to obey when obeying meant suffering. So in essence, he spent those 30 years Learning obedience. A process that he, even though he was the son of God, he had to go through that process. And so the only thing in between basically his birth and his arrival on the scene with John the Baptist, as we know about, takes place in Luke chapter 2 when he was 12 years old. And he and his parents make a trip to the temple. And they're there at the temple and his parents leave to go home. And you know it was a very different day and time when it can be said that they went three days and did not know he wasn't with them. If you're a parent of a little one today, you don't go three minutes If you're in public and depending what kind of child you have, you don't go three minutes at home. Anybody ever had one of those kids where silence was not a good thing? My parents gave Timothy a set of drums for first or second birthday. I forget which one. One of those two, I'm pretty sure. You remember Elizabeth? One of those, maybe a little second, maybe even third, actually, because of where we were living. And everybody's like, are you crazy? You crazy? You let your, tell my wife, you crazy? You let your in-laws give him, it's going to drive you crazy. No, you don't understand. When you heard him in his room beating on those drums and going crazy, it may not have been a beat you wanted to hear, but you knew exactly where he was. There was no question. Silence was as good as sirens going off. Where is he? (laughs) Three days. Three days. And all of a sudden they realize uh, we're missing somebody. And guess where they found him? Right? Where they left him. The lesson that you and I can learn from this is we can't just simply assume Jesus is with us. Oh, he's everywhere, yeah, but if we're not careful, we can go on on our own and leave him behind. Our relationship with him can weaken and diminish. We can't take it for granted. And the good news is you probably can always find him at the same place, right where you left him. And actually a lot of us end up leaving him at church. I don't really have time to tell this story, I don't think, but here I go. Some of you will remember this. Brother Johnny Garrison told it here a couple of times 
I'm not mistaken, he was the one preaching, but a preacher was preaching somewhere and, and they got up and they were preaching about this kind of relationship you can have with Jesus, this personal, intimate relationship. And, and uh, I think the preacher actually challenged every. This is a true story. This is not an internet forward. This is real. The preacher challenged everybody to take Jesus home with you. And so there was a lady there who decided to take that absolutely literally. When she got up to get ready to leave from service, she said, Jesus, I want you to come home with me. She went out to the car, opened the car door and said, please get in and come home. When she got home, she entered the house and she took Jesus, uh, walked around taking Jesus on a tour of her house. This is the this is the living room. This is the family room. And she went all through the whole house. Finally, it came time to go to bed. and She went to lay down and she had had severe back trouble for a significant period of time. And... Um, her routine was she would usually wake up sometime during the night from the degree of the pain and have to get up and take some medicine to be able to finish out the night. And so she got up as she normally would and went down and, and uh, made a cup of tea and sat down with her medicine and then remembered that she brought Jesus home. And she got out another cup of tea, another cup, and made another cup of tea and had him sit down with her and began to talk to him. And they had conversation. And that went on for a little while. And finally she got up and started to make her way back to bed. And the pain was gone and she was feeling good and suddenly looked down and realized the medicine was still on the table. That's the kind of relationship we all have a opportunity. No, it may not all happen exactly that same way, but that level of intimacy. But if we're not careful, we can leave him behind and he's not always going to come chasing after us. So let's go back and we're going to basically spend the remainder of this this session on John the Baptist. Again, as we've already talked about, John's birth was also miraculous as well. In Luke chapter 1 verse 80, it gives us a little bit of a, it's kind of like, it's, it's amazing some of the parallels between John and Jesus. And it's a little bit of a similar thing with John. We don't really get a whole lot of details about John's life after his birth until he comes on the scene. Luke 1 and 80 says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his showing unto Israel. Here we go again. (laughs) If you expect, if you want, if you trust that God's going to use you greatly, if God's got a great purpose of your life, you're going to have to spend some time in isolation. You will not develop into all that God wants you to be if you're always in the crowd. And God took John aside for a number of years because he needed him to develop, not with the crowd. He needed him to develop on his own. What does John tell us? What does the Apostle John tell us about John the Baptist? In John 1 and verse 6, he says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. You know what? In essence, all of us are called to be John the Baptists. We have a God-given mission to prepare the way of the Lord in people's lives. 
We talked about the prophecy concerning Jesus in Bethlehem. Let's look at John because, again, just as there was with Jesus, there were some significant prophecies concerning John and who he was supposed to be. Isaiah 40 and 3 is one of those. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Malachi 3 and 1, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. When we properly prepare the way for the Lord, we can expect that he's going to show up. When we do our part, whether it's in our lives individually, on a personal level, on a daily devotional level, when we do our part to prepare the way of the Lord, He's going to show up. When we come together as a body of believers and we do our part to prepare the way of the Lord, He's going to show up. When we do our part to prepare the way of the Lord in the lives of people that don't know Him, He's going to show up. What was the ministry of John the Baptist? I I want you to, again, going back to the idea that I know a lot of this is stuff that many people know. But but we, we can't miss that there's so many of these things that we could brush off as very insignificant that are not insignificant because they were direct fulfillment of prophecies that were given hundreds of years before. So it wasn't just a coincidence. It was a divine appointment. It was divinely orchestrated. And as I've already said, you and I should take some courage from that. That if God did that in these lives, He is doing the same in our lives. Luke 1 and 17, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I think one of the, and I know you get to the end of John's life or towards the end, he's thrown into prison and all that. I I know that at that point you could sort of say that there was some struggles that John was having. But, But the bottom line is John was somebody who spent most of his life willingly accepting his purpose and his place. What if God has called you to be a John the Baptist for somebody else? To prepare the way for somebody else's ministry that they're going to come along and they're the ones that are going to get all the credit and you're just going to fade off to the side. Or how about, I think, an Old Testament similar scenario is that of Jonathan and David. If Jonathan had not been content with who he was and was jealous of David, he could have had David easily killed. But Jonathan was willing to accept, I'm not the one that's supposed to sit on the throne, even though he had a right to expect that. Yet he was willing to lay his own ambitions, his own ego aside to support the one that God had chosen. 
Some of you are here and you are the one. You're the one that God has chosen to do some very significant things in these times of the church, which I think are the last days. But can you and I be content if really the place God has chosen for us is not to be the one that's the light, but we are the one that's to make way for the one that's the light. The bottom line is, neither one of those roles are more important than the other. And if each one of us do our role and fulfill our place, that's all we're supposed to do. Because we're not in competition with each other. Life of Christ. Let me get back to the topic here. So John's job was to prepare the way of the Lord. And what was John's message as a part of preparing the way of the Lord? What was the message? He had one message. I don't know if, I don't think you went to hear John preach to see what new revelation he was going to come up with. John's message was the message of repentance because not only was that the message for then and there but the bottom line is anytime you are preparing the way of the Lord it's got to start with repentance that's why the first thing you encountered when you went into the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a symbol of repentance so what is what is true repentance? We talk about repentance, and, and I, I personally am I'm of the opinion that a lot of times when we talk about repentance, we are subconsciously thinking of it as an apology. And they're not the same thing. In 2020, and it's been this way for several years now, this isn't new. In fact, it probably may not even get said anymore by the young folks. It may just be us old folks who are stricken in years. You mess up, you make a mistake you, you, in sports, you, you, you make a bad pass, or you, my bad, my bad. That's not what repentance is. Repentance isn't my bad, God. True repentance involves the heart, the mind, and the will. True repentance requires sorrow of heart. Not sorrow, I got caught. Most toddlers, most young children do not have repentance when they're getting disciplined. They simply have sorrow that they got caught. Because if they could figure out another way to sneak the cookie and not get caught, they'd sneak the cookie. Repentance isn't sorry I got caught. Repentance is I'm sorry for what I did. But it's also a change of mind. It is accompanied with a determination of mind and will not to go back and commit the same sins again. So it's not just an apology. True repentance. Yes, God, I'm sorry for what I've done because it was wrong. And not only am I not going to do that again, I'm actually going to change the way I think about it. I wonder how many times we really don't get to the point where we change how we think or feel. And ultimately, our actions can end up proving that when we repeat the same things over and over again. And we apologize over and over again. But there's not a change of mind. There's not a change of heart. There's not a change of will. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10. Godly sorrow 
worketh repentance to salvation. Not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Why does the sorrow of the world work death? Because the sorrow of the world is not repentance. The sorrow of the world is, man, I got caught. The sorrow of God is not, oh, I got caught. It's, you know what? I have violated the word of God. David said this way when he was confronted by the prophet and prayed a prayer of repentance. He said, against thee and thee only. I think a lot of times our problem is, well, we just, well that's just what the pastor says. That's what the church says. So when we sin, our attitude is not necessarily God. It's against you and you only. It's, well, I know what the church says. That's not true repentance. True repentance requires a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction. Another thing we kind of see about John is John was a bit of an eccentric. <laughs> Bible tells us he, he wore camel's hair or a leather girdle and he ate locusts and wild honey. Take another side trail here again. If God's got a divine plan and purpose on your life, you're probably going to have to accept being a little different than everybody else. You may not fit in to the norm, to the crowd. But you can rest assured that the fulfillment that comes from finding God's will and pursuing it and God doing in and through your life what he wants to do makes any price you may pay well worth it. John talks about something that ties in with what Jesus says to Nicodemus and what we see throughout other parts of the New Testament. John says, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Kind of sounds, I just said it, what, like what Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again of the water and of the spirit he cannot see the kingdom of god kind of sounds like what hebrews talks about in hebrews 6 and one of the first couple of verses there about going on from the foundation not not laying again the foundation but going on from there and 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 one of those things being the doctrine of baptisms plural so we come to we've touched on this already we come to jesus in Matthew 3 and 13 comes to John to be baptized. Verse 14, John forbade him saying, I have need to be baptized of thee and comest thou to me. And Jesus answering said unto him, suffer it to be so now for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. The point Part of the point being, if Jesus had not obeyed everything that was required, the sacrifice on Calvary would not have been effective. Jesus had not sinned. I mean, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Because all righteousness needs to be fulfilled. And because he was fully God and fully man. If he was just the second person of a trinity, I don't know why he needed to be baptized. And so Jesus is baptized and it's in this 
scenario, we touched on this in the last session, where those that believe in the idea of the Trinity get some of their verses to back them up. So let's look at it as we close. Matthew 3 and verse 16, picking up from where we just left off. Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were upon Oh, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and a low a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, from the perspective of those that believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, they say, See, there you have it. You have this voice from heaven, which represents the Father. You have the Spirit descending like a dove, which represents the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. And you have Jesus there, which represents this God the Son. So you have it. I want you to notice something. We're going to come back to this passage. But I want you to notice this in John 1.32. John bear record saying, Now watch this. I saw the Spirit. Descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon them. I think when we read Matthew, we are under the assumption everybody gathered there saw this. But John says, I saw this. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptized with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So this whole crowd, according to what John says in John 1 John the Baptist alone saw this. And John the Baptist says, I saw this because this is what was promised to me. I needed to know. I wonder, and and I, I wonder, and I think this is a bit of supposition, but the fact that Jesus was John's cousin, he probably could have easily looked at Jesus and said, no, man, I know you. We grew up together. So he needed something to help him know for sure this is the one. So it wasn't the whole crowd that saw this. John, if that was the case, John should have said we saw, but he said I saw. And I want you to go back quickly to Matthew 3 and 16 and watch this. Watch this in verse 16. Who does it say was descending from heaven? Who does it say? Says it. If anybody got a Bible open? The Spirit of God. Notice. I'm sorry. But I'm not trying to get nitpicky here, but it does not say I saw the Holy Spirit. It clearly says the Spirit of God. So I'm. So I don't know how this proves three. If anything, it proves two. Because it wasn't the Holy Spirit, according to Matthew, it was the Spirit of God. And the context there would be God the Father. And again, John tells us in John 4.22 that God is a Spirit. So John was not saying, I saw the Holy Spirit, second person of the Trinity, flying like a dove. On the day of Pentecost, they saw the Spirit like what? Fire. When, if you're going to take that to be some kind of literal sign of a trinity, then you got to. there must be a couple of kinds of Holy Ghost. There must be a dove Holy Ghost. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind or facetious here. And there must be a 
fire Holy Ghost. There's also a cloud, because that was in the Old Testament. So that was not a confirmation of the Godhead being three separate co-equal persons. It was a confirmation of the fact that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and was fully God and fully man. And so to John, he gets the witness, this is the one. But then the humanity of Jesus had to obey the scripture and fulfill all righteousness. And of course, as most of you know, John's life didn't end in the greatest way. Matthew 14 verses 1 through 12 tell us about the end of John's life. His head was given in response to Herod's stepdaughter's request for it. Not a great way to go. But Jesus says there's never been no greater one born of woman than John the Baptist. Father, thank you for our time together. I trust, God, that not only as we have been sharing and teaching, but even as we continue from this place, that revelation and understanding would continue to settle and work in our hearts and minds. I pray, God, those that already have a spirit of revelation and understanding of the things that have been talked about here this evening, that you would deepen that revelation and understanding. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name, amen.